Welcome to the Vineyard Church of Greater Portland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. For more podcasts and other resources, please visit www.vineyardportland.org. So it's pretty evident, uh, I think, as we can see in the culture uh, that we have around us that we are part of, uh, that there's, there's definitely a decline, as Mario just mentioned, a, a decline in civil discourse that we're seeing. And I think it, it's really kind of, I don't know, for me personally, I've sort of noticed it over probably the past, I don't know, eight to ten years maybe. Um, we're seeing this steady de- decline in just the idea of civility in our culture because of the differences that we have. Um, you know, it's really easy with the onset of me- social media being on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever you, you choose to sort of use as your social media outlet, it's really easy to really uh, go back and forth with people about things that you disagree with uh, in a sense of, you know, in an argumentative way. There's a lot of vitriol that can happen because you can shoot out a tweet really quick and just speak your mind and not be accountable to anybody for it. Uh, it's easy to do that on Facebook. It's easy to do that on a, on a lot of social media platforms. And so I think with, with that reality in our, in our life, it's even more important that we exercise a sense of discretion and self-control when we're engaging with people that we don't necessarily agree with. Uh, because there's a lot of things that can be happening you know, in our public discourse. And a lot of things divide each other. A lot of, a lot of things divide us. And a lot of things divide us on a lot of different lines, whether it be political lines, racial lines, ethnic lines, socioeconomic lines, the list goes on and on. And we tend to be really, as a culture, we can really sort of dismiss the feelings of others when we want our thoughts and our desires and our mindset and our beliefs to be known. You know, just a couple weeks ago, we witnessed a famous actress who made some really insensitive remarks. In fact, they were, they were downright racist and they were dehumanizing to, to a woman of African-American descent who served in the last administration. You know, we've seen um, people, we've seen a, a, another person, a late night uh, comedy show host, you know, make disparaging remarks about, um, you know, the, 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 the current president's daughter. Um, all of these things are happening because of the fact that we Uh, have disagreements with one another, and we literally can't figure out how to express ourselves without being mean. And that's where we're going as a culture. And part of that is this idea of bullying, too, that Mario was talking about earlier. The rate of bullying in our culture seems like it's increasing. I don't know if it really is, but it seems like it is. Whether it's getting more attention, whether it's being spoken about more, I'm not sure. But the rate of bullying in our society is definitely, I think, from a per- my perspective, is increasing. I'll, th- I'll throw up a couple uh, statistics that I got from the anti-bullying website um, that does a lot of studies on this topic. One in seven students in grades uh, K through 12 have reported being bullied or have been a victim of bullying. Six out of 10 Teenagers say they witness bullying every single day in their school. And 35% of kids have been threatened online. Now, this talk this morning is not specifically about bullying, but bullying is 
a byproduct of what we're seeing as a whole in the culture. And this morning, I want to look at what is our role in this, in this culture with this problem? What can we take from our faith that can help us sort of relieve this problem? Because I feel like we have a responsibility to the culture to combat the issues of the culture. We can't just sit here on a Sunday morning and pretend that nothing is going on outside around us. That's not our responsibility. That's not the church's responsibility. Our responsibility is to bring justice to the culture. God is a God of justice. If he wasn't just, he wouldn't be God. So we have, we have a responsibility to bring justice and be a champion for justice in the culture. Justice against discrimination of every sort. Justice against bullying, justice against unfair treatment. We have a responsibility to do that as the church. And I think God has a lot to say about how we treat one another. And he has a lot to say about our response when we are treated badly, when we are maligned, when we are falsely accused, you know, when we are discriminated against. He has a lot to say about that as well. And I want to look at the story of Joseph this morning in the Old Testament, and I want to kind of pick apart, pick some things out of that story that sort of speak to this reality of the first thing is, you know, how are we supposed to treat one another in the culture? And not only that, what is our response when we are treated unfairly? What is our response when we are treated unfairly? What are we going to do when that happens to us? Because God is committed to us in those moments when we are being maligned, when we are being mistreated, when we are being falsely accused. He is committed to us. So I want to look at three points about the story of Joseph this morning. The first is this, jealousy of others. And we're going to work through these one by one. Jealousy of others, the presence amidst uncertainty, and faith through insurmountable odds. So let's dive in. Chapter uh, 37 in Genesis, we see the story of Joseph being unfolded. Joseph was a, a, a son uh, of Jacob. He had 12 brothers, or he had 11 brothers. He was one of 12. And those 12 brothers eventually became the 12 tribes of Israel, right? When they, they left and they went into the land of Canaan, which they were living in at the time. And then we'll see in the story, they leave Canaan and they move somewhere else. But when they come back, right, through Moses and through Joshua, and they enter the land of Canaan again, and they set up the 12 tribes. Those 12 tribes were the, were the 12 names of Joseph's, of Joseph's brothers. So Joseph lived with his, uh, his father Jacob and his uh, 11 other brothers. And they lived in a town called Hebron. It's in Israel. And Hebron, I don't know, if, do we have the map of that? Um, Hebron is, uh, as you can see, you might not be able to see, it's about 50 miles or sorry, 30 miles uh, south of Jerusalem. And that is where Joseph lived. 
And Joseph had a lot of things that uh, he, had, he didn't have going for him. Uh, Joseph with his brothers. Joseph was kind of a tattletale, okay? Joseph was kind of a tattletale, and that's how he was, he was looked at by his brothers. Joseph also was his father's favorite. It says very clearly in Scripture that Joseph was his father's favorite. And Joseph had dreams. I'm not talking like just like these, like, oh, I, I have these, you know, I have, I have this idea of what my life wants to be. Not those kind of dreams. He had like specific dreams that he would share with his brothers. And one of these dreams <laughs> was this picture of them working in the field. And after the harvest, they would sheave wheat. That's what they would do. They would go around and they would pick up all of the, the shaft from the wheat after the harvest, and they would put, put it together in a bundle right there. And Joseph had a dream that he told his brothers. He said, hey, I had a dream that we were all in this field together, and we were all, you know, sheaving, you know, uh, putting our wheat in, in these sheaves and these piles and binding them up. And all of a sudden, my sheave of wheat stood up on its own. And then your sheaves of wheat all bowed to mine. I'm sure that went over really well with his brothers. So they, they basically looked at Joseph, and they, they literally just basically couldn't stand him. They were jealous of their brother. They were jealous of their brother. So one day, Jacob tells Joseph, they're in Hebron. The, the brothers go up to Shechem, which is about 50 miles north of Jerusalem, where they had another field and they were doing their thing. He said, can you go up and check on your brothers and your sheep and the flocks and the wheat and the fields and see how things are going? Come back to me and report to me. So Joseph heads up to Shechem. And uh, as he gets there and he arrives, his brothers uh, basically see him coming from afar because as you know, some of you may know, you know, Jacob made a tunic for Joseph and it was really bright colored. And so every time Joseph would go anywhere, everyone knew who he was because he had this bright <laughs> tunic no one else had. So they see him coming from far away and they're like, oh man, here comes our brother Joseph. I can't stand this guy. So they see him and then they decide to plot a way to get rid of him through their jealousy. Father's not around, no authority over them. They said to them, hey, let's figure out a way we can get rid of this guy because he's just a pain in our butt and like we can't stand him. So they kind of go through a couple different options. They're like, no, we can't do that. Oh, we can't do that. All right. So let's, 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 let's try this. We'll sell him. We'll sell him. So in Genesis 37, 18 to 20, this is what it says in the, uh, if you're following along, the New Living Translation. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. So they plot to kill Joseph. Throw him in a cistern, which is basically this big hole that collects water in the ground. He can't get out of it. They ended up not doing that, and they ended up just selling him to these people that were traveling to Egypt for like 20 shekels of silver. Joseph was completely betrayed by his family because his brothers were so jealous of him. 
Jealousy makes us do really irrational things, wouldn't you say? Yes, it does. To the point where these guys would sell their own brother because they were so jealous of him. So Joseph becomes this involuntary, involuntary traveler with this group of people he doesn't know on his way to some land he doesn't know. Complete betrayal because of jealousy. So when he arrives in Egypt, he's then sold to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar was a pretty big guy in the Egyptian government. He was really important. He was actually the captain of Pharaoh's royal guard, basically ran the jail and all the prisons, and he, he, he did all that. He was really, really high up in the Egyptian government. He gets sold to this guy named Potiphar. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, I thought Joseph's dream was that he was going to lead and be a leader. Joseph's dreams that God gave him were dreams of, of prospering. Joseph's dreams were dreams of being a leader, being a man of integrity, leading his people. He's now sold to these band of sojourners, these travelers, and then he gets sold again to this guy named Potiphar. It's like, what's going on here? So immediately after we read that he's sold to Potiphar, this is what the, the narrator of the book of Genesis says in chapter uh, 39, verse 2. He says, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And we need to pay attention to that because it's going to come up again. So Joseph comes into, the, into Potiphar's household. He basically has this, I mean, God just pours out his favor over Joseph in this situation, even though it seemed like this was not what Joseph was supposed to be doing, right? So very quickly, Potiphar realizes the abilities of Joseph and, and puts him basically in, the, in charge of his, of his house, of his household, everything that goes on in it, his fields, everything that goes on in his fields. Basically, Joseph is running Potiphar's household while Potiphar does his own business with the government. So immediately we see Joseph, the favor of God on Joseph in this situation. It's really interesting, the narrator, after revealing the fact that Joseph is sold again, says, the Lord was with him. So Joseph is in the house, doing a lot, taking care of the day-to-day -day stuff, kind of living life. And uh, he had a problem. And the problem was Potiphar's wife. See, Potiphar's wife was always there, and she had sort of an interest in Joseph. She kind of liked Joseph a little bit. And so one day, she approached Joseph. And Joseph, being a godly man, he rejected her advances. And because of that, out of her jealousy, she tells Potiphar, this guy attacks me. So Potiphar goes and takes Joseph and throws him in prison. So now we go from living with his brothers, being sold to a bunch of travelers, then being sold again to Potiphar. Now he's not only a slave to Potiphar, now he's in prison. And right after we re he reveals, the narrator reveals the fact that Joseph was thrown in prison because of the fact that he wouldn't succumb to Potiphar's wife, what does the narrator say? The Lord was with Joseph. It's really interesting how the narrator picks times in Joseph's life of uncertainty to point out the fact that God was with him. That's really interesting. 
It is in the times of uncertainty and difficulty where we think this is not the way my life is supposed to go, where we are supposed to understand that God's presence is with us more than ever. That is what the narrator is trying to drive home. Every time we see something happen to Joseph, the narrator says, but God was with him. So he's in the prison, right? He basically gets put in charge of the prison. I mean, wherever this guy goes, it's like people, you know those people that like, like they, get, they get a job and within like a month, they're like, they're like, they're the boss. They're, they're, they're you know, they're, they get, you know, promoted and they get all these other responsibilities like poured onto them because of the fact that they, they've shown that they can handle it. This is like Joseph. Like Joseph gets sold as a slave and then he becomes the leader of the house a Potiphar's house. Then something happens and he gets thrown into the jail and then becomes like the, the overseer of the jail. I mean, everywhere this guy goes, he's like given responsibility because God's presence is with him. God's favor is on him. So he's literally in the jail and now he's overseeing the prison. <laughs> so these two guys come in. These two new prisoners come in. One of them is a cupbearer from Pharaoh. Pharaoh's cupbearer. The other one is the baker for Pharaoh. Now, the cupbearer is really important because the cupbearer literally serves the drinks at the table when Pharaoh is eating. And a lot of times, he kind of tastes the wine to make sure it's not poisoned so that no one can kill Pharaoh. But he's also a, a man of influence in Pharaoh's circle, so he has Pharaoh's ear a lot about a lot of things. So one night, these two men have a dream that really startles them. And Joseph, the next morning, approaches them and notices that they have a lot of anxiety. And he says, what's, what's wrong? They said, oh, we have a dream. And he's like, well, you know what? I think I could interpret that dream for you. And they said, all right. So they inter he interprets the dream. The baker's dream was that the baker wasn't going to make it. Now, the cupbearer's dream, Joseph interpreted that he was going to be restored to his position with Pharaoh. little time passes, sure enough, the cupbearer gets replaced back into his spot as the cupbearer for Pharaoh, the baker. Well, he had other things happen to him. Before the cupbearer left, Joseph said, hey, listen, I know you're leaving and you're going back. Could you, you know, maybe put in a good word to Pharaoh for me? You know, like, Tell him about my ability to maybe interpret dreams. You know, I could maybe be of some use to him. He knows that the cupbearer has a lot of influence with Pharaoh, so he says, you know, it'd be really nice if you could maybe put in a good word, get me out of this place. <laughs> well, we read in Scripture, not too long after the cupbearer leaves, in chapter, uh, chapter 40, verse 23, they said the cupbearer never remembered Joseph, never mentioned Joseph to Pharaoh. Things aren't going well for Joseph at this point, okay? Things are not going well. He gets sold twice. He gets landed in prison. He tries to get out. He tells the cupbearer, hey, can you help me out? Nothing. So after two long years, after the cupbearer left, Joseph continued to oversee the prison. 
Now, Pharaoh has a dream. And conveniently, the cupbearer remembers, hey, I remember this guy that I met. Remember Pharaoh when you threw me in prison? Remember that when you probably falsely accused me of something and you threw me in prison? And I was there for a little while. Do you remember that? Well, I met this guy. And this guy, he interprets dreams. And he told me that I was going to be reinstalled into my position to you. And here I am. I am. I'm right here. I am your cupbearer. Maybe this guy can help you out. So they summon Joseph over to Pharaoh. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream and basically says to Pharaoh, hey, this is what your dream means. There's going to be seven years of famine in the land. There's going to be seven years of famine in the land. But before that, there will be seven years of abundance. And in that seven year of a, those seven years of abundance, we need to do something in order to prevent the famine. And so Pharaoh believes Joseph for the interpretation. And he puts Joseph literally in charge of Egypt. Literally in charge of Egypt, except for the throne. He becomes the prime minister, basically, of Egypt. And so Joseph becomes responsible for collecting all the crop, collecting all of the harvest, saving it, basically one-fifth of the harvest each year was going to be stored away in storehouses because the seven years of famine were coming. So the seven years of abundance pass, and then we come into the famine. Joseph is still in his place, collecting, being faithful and true to Pharaoh. One day, his brothers decide to come, and he meets his brothers after years and years and years of being separated from them. They come to, to Joseph, and they say to him, we need grain. We need food. We have nothing. We are in the middle of a famine, and we've heard about what you guys have done here. You have saved your harvest. You have saved your crop. Can we buy some for you, from you? And Joseph, he gives them what they're asking for. And through a series of events, he actually reveals his identity to them. And this is what it reads in Genesis 45, 4 through 8. He says this, Please come closer. So they came closer. And he said again, I am Joseph, your brother whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place because it was God who brought me here. He brought me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. Joseph had amazing faith through insurmountable odds. Amazing faith through, through insurmountable odds.
he was treated poorly by his brothers, sold into slavery, sold again to Potiphar, thrown in jail. Joseph was a victim of jealousy. It seemed like he could never catch a break. And we, as the church this morning, can look at this story and we can look at it and think to ourselves, you know what? I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could face that much uncertainty and still have faith that the presence of God is with me. I just want us to understand a couple of things this morning by way of application about this story. And the first is this. Jealousy is wicked. This is what it says in Proverbs 27, 4 about jealousy. Anger is cruel and wrath is like a flood, but jealousy is even more dangerous. Think about that. It's even more dangerous than anger and wrath. It says in Proverbs 14.30, a peaceful heart leads to a healthy body. Jealousy is like cancer to the bones. It will eat you alive. It'll rip through relationships. It'll burn through relationships quicker than a midsummer California wildfire. It will just eat up relationships if we are not careful. Jealousy is toxic. And Joseph's brothers were extremely jealous of him, so much so that they plotted to kill him. We, in our lives this morning, have to be ruthless with jealousy. Ruthless. It cannot exist in our lives, we cannot be jealous of others for whatever reason. Because every moment we spend being jealous of someone else is a moment wasted understanding the unique calling that God has on your life and the unique gifting and blessing that God has poured out upon you. Every moment you spend in an attitude of jealousy, you forfeit that. So what is the antithesis of this. The antithesis of jealousy and insecurity is humility. Is humility. Paul in his letter to the Philippians paints an unbelievably awesome picture about who we are to be as the church in this culture and what humility over jealousy looks like. In Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 through 8, this is what it says. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Ask yourself this morning, are these things that describe my life? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly. What's the next? Agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. 
looking out only, not only for just your own interests, but taking an interest in others. You must have the same attitude as Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. That is our mindset this morning. That is where we need to live this morning as the church in this culture. That is God's expectation for us this morning. Because we are the hope for others. We are the hope for those that are being bullied. We are the hope for others that don't want to go to school. We are the hope for others that don't want to go to work because they have a boss that is overbearing, overbearing and bullying them. This just isn't happening in high schools. It is happening, happening throughout the culture. We are the hope for people that are discriminated against, whether it be through, because of their race, their ethnic, their ethnic background, their gender, or their sexual preference. We need to be the hope for people that are being discriminated against, no matter the discrimination. The culture champions diversity and tolerance, but the culture does a great job at dividing us among a lot of different lines. Because we are all starving to be significant this morning. Every one of us, me included, all of us are starving to be significant. There's a sense of significance we need to feel in our lives for something. There isn't one person in this room that doesn't want to feel like they matter. There isn't one person in this room that doesn't want to feel significant to something. It's our job in this culture this morning to herald the message of Jesus, right? That we are going to live in humility with the acceptance and love absent of jealousy and insecurity. That is who we are. That is the message that we are heralding this morning. That is who we need to be in the culture that is starving for significance. The second app I want to look at real quick is this. Setbacks catapult us into provision. Setbacks catapult us into provision. If you look at Joseph's life, he had a lot of setbacks. I know you can look back on your life right now and, be, and say to yourself, man, I've had a lot of setbacks. But understand this this morning, you guys. Setbacks catapult you into provision. Joseph had a lot of setbacks. Like we said, he was sold by his brothers. He was sold by his own family through wicked jealousy. Sold to Potiphar and became a slave, was in prison. He had every right to give up on the dream that God had given him that he was going to be a leader, that he was going to be a man of significance in the kingdom. He had every right to think, wow, maybe that wasn't from God. 
God promised him a life of provision. God promised him a life of abundance. And yet, nothing about Joseph's life signaled that. And so, setback after setback after setback, Joseph could have decided, you know what? This is just the life I'm called to be. Potiphar's slave. A man in prison. It would have been easy to forget about the destiny that God revealed to him. But he didn't forget. He had faith through uncertainty. Through insurmountable odds, Joseph decided to trust God no matter what his life looked like at the moment. So setback after setback after setback, Joseph had to persevere through each single one. I know you guys deal with setbacks. We deal with setbacks. We have setbacks in our lives that we're dealing with right now. You know, just personally, like some of you know that we're in the process of selling our house and we've had two people and if you know anything about the whole process of selling your house, it's not easy. Well, sometimes it's easy. But in my case, it's not. But that's okay. <laughs> in our case, it's been, it's been difficult. It's been difficult. Um, we've had two people that have gone under contract with us and have both have, have decided not to buy the house. So those were two major setbacks for us that we felt like, oh, okay, we're going to, all right, people are interested in this house. People are ready to buy this house okay, good, we, we've, we've got people, we're under contract, we're good to go. Twice we've been in that place, and twice they have decided that they didn't want to buy the house. Two huge setbacks for us. And I carried that for a little while. After the second time, I was so defeated. I was just like, is anyone ever going to buy this house? Where are we going, Lord? I made a decision early on. I said, I can't carry this. I can't carry this. This setback that I'm experiencing and that Shannon and I are experiencing, I can't carry it. And I literally gave it to him. I said, Lord, I can't carry it. I don't have the ability and the will to carry it. And so I literally gave it to him. I said, you know what? <coughs> it's yours. It's yours. And I know that God is going to deliver me into a season of provision after those two setbacks. He hasn't done it yet. And I'm okay with that. But I know he's going to. I know he's going to. Why? Because he's dedicated to us. He's faithful to us. He has never let us down up until this point. I'm sitting here with clothes on my back, food in my fridge. Not much money in my bank account, but that's okay. That's not how we measure success in the kingdom. But I know that these setbacks are going to catapult us into a season of provision, just like Joseph. And I want to encourage you guys this morning, if you are experiencing setbacks this morning right now, hold on, because he is catapulting you into a season of provision in your life, just like he did Joseph, and just like he will you and me. And the final thing I just want to, to, to share this morning is this, that God transforms the places of affliction into the places of fruitfulness. And that's the title of the message this morning, affliction or fruitfulness from affliction. 
Finally, Joseph gets his call. He's sitting in the prison for two years, and he gets the call to get in the game. He's off the bench. Potiphar calls for him and says, I need someone to interpret this dream for me. Joseph, seemingly hopeless, now has new life. He is called to the court of Pharaoh, what he's been asking for, for years. So the day comes, and a lifelong season of provision is about to be born in Joseph's life after the affliction he has suffered for years in the land of Egypt. Up until this point, everything that Joseph experienced in Egypt was painful and a source of affliction. Being sold, being a slave, being in prison, everything seemed to work against Joseph since he's been in Egypt. This land has been nothing but trouble for Joseph. But, but, Pharaoh calls for Joseph. And Joseph's affliction is transformed into fruitfulness. God takes his affliction and transforms it into fruitfulness. And what does that fruitfulness look like? It looks like Joseph's dream, interpretation, taking care of the land, taking care of his family. Joseph becomes the man who provides not only for, for him, for his entire family, not only for his entire family, but the entire nation of Egypt, not only the entire nation of Egypt, but the entire nation of Israel. God delivers him out of affliction into a place of fruitfulness. And this morning, the same is true for you and me, that in a place of affliction and pain and suffering, God is going to deliver you out of that into a place of fruitfulness. And you want to know how he's going to do that? Through your patient endurance. Your patient endurance is the key to move from affliction to fruitfulness. Understand that. Your patient endurance is the key to moving from affliction to fruitfulness. This passage in Hebrews literally sums up Joseph's, Joseph's life. Do we have that? Hebrews chapter 10, 35 and 36. So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. Yes, that is Joseph's life in a nutshell, right there. His patient endurance allowed God to transform him and his life from a place of affliction into a place of fruitfulness. His setbacks catapulted him into provision. How? Through his patient endurance. So that is where we're going to live this morning. That is where we will live this morning. We will not live in a place of jealousy or slander or anger 
We will do nothing out of selfish ambition. We will live in humility and consider others better than ourselves. That is where we are called to live this morning as the church. And we will always hold fast to the call and destiny that God has on our lives, regardless of the circumstances that we see in front of us. And we will find ourselves understanding that setbacks catapult us into provision and the places of affliction will be transformed into places of fruitfulness. Amen? Amen.